0: Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. Let's start this morning by complaining about a first world problem. How's that sound? I want to complain? Of course you do. Everybody loves doing this. This is a pastime for Americans to complain about a first world problem. Here, here's one, uh, cybersecurity. Okay, I get why we need it. It makes sense, right? Uh, it, it all started with a PIN. You had like a four-digit code. You type that in. You get into your whatever, right? Your, your phone, your computer, that sort of stuff. Then it was passwords, and those are fine. You just can't use the same one. You know, that's, that's a no-no, they say. You also have to include letters and numbers and capitalize and, and punctuation, that sort of stuff. That, guy, that that just gets too much. It's just too much. And then, and then they did fingerprints. And I, I would make the argument that we peaked at fingerprints. Fingerprints are great. I always have it with me. I don't forget it. It works, right? I like that. My phone used to have that. And now we're on like facial recognition. Anybody have a device that, that facially recognizes you? Anybody? All right. My phone does that, my, uh, my iPod, uh, iPad does that. Sometimes I'll try to log into something and it like buzzes like I have the wrong face. Like, um, like it's like, no, you need to, did you forget your face? We need to, you need to reset your face, something like that. That's what I feel like it's saying to me, facial recognition. One time I walked into my bedroom and uh, my second son, if you know my sons, this is not gonna surprise you. My second son is over, kind of um, hovering over my dresser. Uh, huddled over there, his back to me. And I said, what are you doing? And he turns around, he has my phone and a picture of me. And he's like, it's like this. He looks at me just like this. He goes, I'm trying to get into your phone. He doesn't lie about it. Nothing. He doesn't set it down and run away. He's just like, I'm trying to get into your phone, just like this. And, and I was like, well, that, that's not how that works, dummy. And uh, so then I explained to him how Facial recognition works to the best of my ability. But you see, the thing that he's doing and my frustrations with facial recognition and pin numbers and all that sort of stuff really is not at the fault of the device, right? That's not its fault. It's not broken. I am. And we call that user error. We call that user error that you are using something wrong. You're doing it wrong. That's not how it works. I knew a guy one time that shot himself in the leg not the gun's fault that is not the gun did not do that okay he did that i also knew a lady and i am not going to take the time to explain this right now but i will explain it later if you want uh i knew a lady that backed over herself yeah at one moment she was in the driver's seat and the next moment the vehicle rolled over the top of her okay that literally happened it was not the car's fault it's a user error the reason i bring all of this up is because We feel this frustration when we engage in other things. And it's not just product. It's not just phones or iPads or vehicles or guns. It's also sometimes relationships, right? If you use another person for selfish reasons, then you are using it wrong. That's not how it works. And it's not going to work well for you. It happens with products. It happens with relationships. It happens with religion. It happens in a a number of ways. In John chapter five, there's this story that I feel the same sort of frustration with, the same sort of angst with, as I do when the phone doesn't recognize my face. I feel like I must be using this wrong. And the reality is that a lot of us, when we approach scripture, when we look at the Bible or religion and we begin to feel that, we blame it. Ah, it's not right, it's outdated. It's not something that's relevant to my life, but. The truth is that in those moments, when we read a text about something Jesus says, or something he does, or in this case, something he doesn't do, and we don't like it, then it's not Jesus, it's not John, it's not scripture that's wrong, it's us. And it's a really encouraging thing to just lean into that feeling. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain this story to you in layers, kinda like an onion, you know? First layers are fine. But we'll go a little bit deeper, and when we go deeper, it's going to get more and more challenging, more and more, I think, frustrating. There was a good portion of preparation this week for this sermon in which I was frustrated with the text. I just had to lay it down and go, Jesus, I don't get it. I don't, I don't, I don't like it. This isn't the way that I would do things, which really, that's really what it's revealing, right? When the Bible doesn't line up with my expectations, it shows that I'm the one setting expectations for the Bible and so it should change. Let's pray together, and what we're going to pray about, I'm going to pray this for you. I hope that you would pray this for me as well, is that when we read scripture, I pray that we are challenged by it, and then changed by it. God, thank you for this moment to come together, to hang out, to read your text. God, I pray for those who are new with us, that they would find a community, they would find hope, they would find acceptance. God, I pray for all of us, as we read this text, we would pick up what we can, we would we would struggle with the things that we struggle with, and that ultimately, God, we would be changed by your word, your life, your ministry, your scripture. It's in Jesus' name we pray together, amen. John chapter five reads like this, just the first couple of words. It says, after this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went to Jerusalem, and by the sheep gate, it's just kind of the name of one of the gates, in Jerusalem there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic which has five colonnades, which within these colonnades lay a large number of disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. The setting of this story is, uh, you know, it's abundantly clear. It's not hard to, to pick up after this Jewish festival took place in the city of Jerusalem. It's a holy city, and which Jewish festival doesn't matter. There's a couple of theories on which one it was, but none of them matter. John's just trying to tell you that this isn't a random day in a random city. This is a holy day in a holy city. It charges this story from the very offset. From the very beginning, you walk into this text and into this story with a, like these religious overtones. This is, a, this is a very special situation that's happening. And Jesus is going to do something, obviously. If you read anything about Jesus, you're going to, he's going to mess something up here, all right? Their expectations, where they are, it's not going to go the way that they would want it to go. He's going to turn the whole thing on its head. You can, you can just tell that when it says, on a special day in a special place, Jesus, right? That's, that's what's going to happen here. And in particular, it's a pool. It's a pool called Bethesda inside a certain gate there in the Holy City. Here's a challenge for us when you read the Bible. When it says pool, I'm going to guess that nearly everybody in this room, everybody watching online, we are going to think of recreational swimming, right? You think of the YMCA, you might think of um, aquatic center you might think of uh, a neighborhood pool, something along those lines. And so in our minds, when we read a story like this, we, we picture this big city pool and a lot of people in it. That's not what was happening here. There's two major theories on probably what this thing was and was, it was this huge, rectangular, stone-hewn reservoir. Likely, this was a pooling of water. It was a rain keep. It was this big thing that would hold the water so that it could be uh, tunneled or or piped to Herod's temple or or the garden, those sort of things. That's what's going on here. Or it is also probable that it was a a spring-fed sort of a a natural pool that they that it was spring-fed so they just kind of built a structure around it and it held the water there for the same purposes of gardens and houses so in other words what I'm trying to tell you is this it's it's much more likely that this was something like the bathhouses in hot springs than it was your neighborhood pool Okay, That's not what's happening here. And so when you see people, all these people in this story, and they're all around this thing, it's not like a, like a bunch of people in lounge chairs and beach balls. That's, that's not what's happening here. This is broken people. And that's really what it comes up in the very next phrase there, that within these colonnades... So there are columns and these roofs. They were open air. These giant two pools that were very close together called the Pool of Bethesda. One, two, three, four, five structures. All these people laying underneath it. Within these colonies lay a large number of disabled people. And that really brings up the why of the story. Why are all these people laying around this reservoir of water? Well, it was thought that an angel, an angel of God would stir up the water. And when that water stirred, if you were to get into the water, whatever ails you would be cured, all right? And for us reading that, we're like, well, that sounds crazy. We have entire cities in this state that were built on similar ideas, all right? That this water is magical and it will heal you. How many of you uh, in your Bible, you may have not noticed this, but look down at your Bible real quick. Look at the verse markings. The verse markings should read one, two, three, five. Raise your hand if you don't have a four. Yeah, look, you do have a four. If you do have a four, you're reading either the King James or the New American Standard. There's a lot of uh, textual criticism into why that is, but pr- here's the short answer. The most reliable Greek original manuscripts of the New Testament, the most reliable Greek manuscripts that we have, do not have what is marked as verse four in the King James or the New American. Since the King James was early, early on, and most Bibles were kind of based on that later, then we retained a four or we skipped the four. If you have like a New American, it's put in brackets to show you this wasn't in the original. If you have something like the CSV, which is what I use, or the NIV, something like that, then it's probably down in a footnote. Or right after three, you have a little button there if you're watching something or you're reading something digital, you have a little button there and it'll pop up and say, some translations say this, it's not in the original um, manuscripts Uh, within their first century scribes who were writing down the bible writing down by hand they didn't have photocopy right so they were writing down by hand someone stopped at that point and made a note off to the side that said the angel thing and you get into the water and then further translations just kept that in there this is one of the reasons why i was telling somebody right after the original service uh or the eight o'clock service i don't i don't suggest the king james i i rare the king james is is one of the least reliable modern English translations that we have or common English translations that we have so anyways all that to say that's sort of what's going on in this text and all of it just there on three verses makes us sort of uncomfortable like I have questions did anybody ever get healed in this pool is this a common thing did Jesus agree with this is this a normal thing what was the pool and why were so many people around it exactly what is going on in this scenario i don't know but from the very first beginning i have questions it sounds like it sounds like mysticism doesn't it like magic water or something like that and jesus doesn't say y'all stop this he doesn't walk into and say everybody move but what we can pick up here and what jesus or john is teaching us about jesus is that jesus steps towards the pain Whatever's happening with the pool, what I do know is the pool is surrounded by people in need with needs. People that are um, uh, needing other people to help them, people that have desires, people that have hurts and hangups. And what I know from research is that good rabbis, respectable, decent people never went over to this pool. They didn't want to go around these people. They didn't want to be in this situation. What John is trying to point out is that like always, Jesus is stepping into places where people are hurting. Jesus is stepping toward the people that are in pain. That's what Jesus does. All of that other stuff that I don't understand because it's not my culture, because it's not my century, because it's not my setting, doesn't matter. What John is trying to show us is that Jesus steps towards the pain. He's constantly stepping towards the pain there's also this other theme that's happening. If you read in chapter 3, Jesus talked to Nicodemus and they talked about water, unless a man is born uh, or a person is born of spirit and of water. Remember that? In John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well. They talk about water. John chapter 5, Jesus heals a guy near a pool. There's this theme, this idea of water, but the underlining Idea is that Jesus steps towards the hurting. This is one of the reasons why when you're gathered together as a church, when it's a Thursday night college gathering, when it's Wednesday night youth, when it is uh, the the five o'clock service, whatever it is, I really encourage people to understand that many of you come into a setting like this well. You're happy. Life's going good. You've got bandwidth to help other people, but we, through our own human nature, tend to wholly huddle right? You get to church, you find your friends, you sit down, these are my, my buddies, these are my people, I'm going to talk to them, and then you leave. And there is such, a, such a, a, a ministry that you can do that when you come into a church, when people are gathered together, there's a lot of people that are new and searching. There's a lot of people that are hurting and in pain, and, and you can minister to them just by being kind to them. You might be the only person all week long that is intentional about saying, are you new? Uh, Can I pray for you? Would you sit with us? You want to go to lunch? We're we're all going down to this place or that. It's a ministry that happens that we ought to be like Jesus. So when I read this text, if we just stop there, that's a great story. I really like that. Be like Jesus. Walk toward the hurting. But then Jesus starts talking. And isn't it always when he starts talking that really confronts us and goes, we don't measure up. Look at verse 5 through 9 one man was there who had been disabled for 38 years and when Jesus saw him lying there he realized he had been there for a long time and he said to him do you want to get well? think about that you've been laying there for a long time Jesus said do you want to get well? sir the disabled man answered I have no one to put me into the pool and when the water is stirred up and while I'm coming someone goes down ahead of me Jesus said get up pick up your mat and walk and instantly The guy gets up, picks up his mat, and started to walk away. This conversation is where it starts to get a little bit like, I don't know that I understand what you're doing, Jesus. I don't know that I understand what's going on. The language here about him being there for 38 years, and Jesus knows that he's there for a long time. This is John tipping his hat that Jesus is more than just a man. Jesus is divine. The way I've sort of pictured is John and, and Peter and the other disciples, Jesus. Jesus is sort of leading the pack. He walks into Jerusalem. They think it's a holy city. We're gonna go on this holy day to the temple. We're gonna do the normal Jews, Jewish stuff. We're gonna go do this, but Jesus takes a left-hand turn. He goes over to the pool where You know we don't really go over there i mean i guess we can you're not in any sort of danger but it's just not a place that you want to be seen jesus walks into this place and john standing next to him looks around and says man i wonder how long these people have been here there's a lot of them jesus looks and goes that guy over there 38 years just something he knows just something that those that that they've been here about 12 that one there though Thirty-eight. That's how John writes it down. John knew it because Jesus told him. Jesus knew it because he's divine. He's more than just a man. He knows things. He knows a lot of things. Things that you don't tell people, things that you hide, things that you're afraid to admit uh, to Jesus. Jesus knows that stuff. He knows those, those pains, those wounds that you walk in here. He knows the depth of it and the hurt of it. And that's why all the more, the very next line sounds crazy. Jesus knows how old the dude is and he looks at the dude and asks him this question. Do you want to get well? Do you even want to get better? And that's such a weird thing for Jesus to ask. Jesus is always asking weird things. When he was at the with the woman at the Samaritan well, or the Samaritan at the well, he says to her, "Go get your why don't you go get your husband?" It's like, ooh, I don't want to talk about that." In chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus and he looks at Nicodemus and goes, "Aren't you like a teacher?" You don't know this stuff, aren't you a teacher? It, it, it should be reminded that Jesus has never asked God, Jesus, never ask a question because He needs to know the information. He's always asking questions so that you will struggle with the question. You think when, when God shows up to the garden and he says, "Hey Adam, where are you?" You don't think God knew exactly where Adam was? He wanted Adam to say, "I'm hiding." So what is it that Jesus is trying to get at here? I think one thing, and this is sort of based on the answer that he gives. One thing that is like, do you want to get well? To answer that question, the man has to believe he could get well. He has to, over some period of time, be holding on to some sort of hope, some sort of reality that the water or God or somebody could fix him. Do you? Do you? Here's a here's another way to say the question: Do you even think you can get well? Do you think you can be freed from this? Walk outside of this? Do you think that you can get better? And the man gives him a no answer answer. He says, oh no, I don't know what to do. The man says to him, sir, the disabled man said, I have no one to put me into the water. His answer is not a, yes, I do want to give. It's not a, no, I do not want to give. It's not a, what do you think I'm doing here, genius? It's a, it's a answer that says, assumes, of course I want to get well, but I've done everything I can do. I need somebody else to help me with this circumstance. His answer does answer the question, just doesn't answer it directly. He says, I've done what I can, but other people keep beating. I, I, I can't do anything more than I can right he addresses the topic and that really points out his need for someone else and so Jesus just responds to that this whole story is not normal for Jesus conversations hey 38 year old do you want to get better because well I tried everything I can then Jesus says then get up stand up pick up your mat and the man says okay stands up walks away Is everybody else satisfied with that Y'all like all the holes in that? You like all the like, what are y'all talking about situation that's going on in this circumstance? But we could pause here and we could make this really applicable. Something I think that will help every one of you. So listen to me on this, hear me on this. There is a broad application to it. I'm guessing nobody has a magic pool at your house, right? So this isn't a story about managing your magic healing pool. That's not, what it, that doesn't, that's not how it applies. And nearly all of us, almost none of us, deal with this particular disability, right? This isn't something that we struggle with. So then what is it? Well, here's my belief. I think that almost all of us watching online and here in this room, all of us share this one thing that we walk in, in which we are, in a manner of speaking, disabled internally. Our hearts are hobbled, our souls are stuck. We can't mature, we can't grow. We're constantly having these relational issues. We're constantly having these internal battles that are dealing with fear and stress and doubt and hopelessness. And it's not that you've been dealing with that for a few minutes, it's not that you've been dealing with that for a few days. You've been dealing with that like your whole life, like 38 years, a long time. You're struggling with these pains and these hurts and these things that are in your heart that I truly believe that we hear and believe the lies that other people tell us. We believe the things that Satan whispers in our ears that you're not worthy. You're not good enough. Ain't nobody love you. You're gonna have to do this all on your own. You're by yourself. The unique things about you are problems. They're not features. They're in the way they're bad. You hear those things, you thought those things, you believed those things, and so you're stuck. And I think Jesus is looking at you right now. I think the Spirit is saying to you, do you think you can be better? Do you even think it's possible that you don't live this way? Do you think it's possible that you could live a life not suffocating under the fear of impressing other people, or not impressing other people or the doubt that anything will do you think that you can be freed from this grief from this struggle from this pain do you think that that is possible and what Jesus needs you to get to the point is to realize I've done everything I can and I can't do anything else it's going to take you stepping in and fixing this and so I would encourage you if you are in the midst of that if you're struggling with something you've got some sort of pain you walked in here with some sort of burden you can't move forward because something is holding you back, you can be made well. Jesus wants to free you from these things. He wants to liberate you from these things. But the first thing is for you to realize you can't do this on your own. If you could, you would have already, right? You're walking around with some sort of fear, some sort of pain. Do you want to get better? Of course you do. So just go ahead and accept and, re- and, and get to the reality that you're gonna need Jesus to step out and to do that. And what you need to do in that spot, is exactly what the man did. You need to listen to what Jesus says and obey him. You need to do what Jesus says. You need to believe what Jesus said. So your, your dad, your mom, maybe they said it, maybe it was implied, school, coaches, relationships, they said you're not worthy you're not loved, you're on the outside, you're not accepted. And then God says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I made you just the way that I want you to be. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. And you have unique giftings and perspectives and talents that only you have. That's how I created you to be. You got to believe that. Listen, I've been in these spots. I've been in these spots where I hear people talk about how I'll never measure up to the standard that they have created for me. That there's some sort of daddy wound in their life that I'm not meeting and fixing as their pastor or whatever that circumstance might be. And it's gotten to me. It's broke me down. It's locked me up. It's made it to where I can't feel, where I can't think, where I can't function. God gave me a a text. I want to share this with you. Psalm 119 verse 73 and 80 says, your hands made me and formed me. It's not microwave stuff here. This is art. You have made me, formed me the way that you want me to be. Give me understanding, God. Help me to understand that. May my heart be blameless regarding your statues, because in the heart is where it all starts, what I think, what I believe about myself, what I believe about God, what I believe about my, my task, my calling, my my ministry, and then it goes out to what I do, his statutes, so that I will not be put to shame." Listen, it's a good word. This is what Jesus helps this man realize. This is the way that we can apply it to our lives. Do you wanna get better? You can get better, you can. Just listen and obey God. Not in everything. Listen, this doesn't mean that, that you, you may not need counseling or a therapist. This, this doesn't mean that you may not need um, medication That you don't need others, like a small group of friends to walk alongside of you. All of that is true. But on some very basic beginning sort of level, do you want to get better? You can. Listen to what he says and not what they said. Here's one of the reminders that's really stuck out to me this week. You have a lot of critics, but you only have one judge. They can say whatever they want to say, but the one who made you the way he wanted you to be made says, I love you. I love you the way you are. You be what I created you to be. So all oh, that's great, right? It gets challenging. It gets harder. It gets, like at the beginning, Jesus walks towards the hurting. Got it. I'll do that. This part here, Jesus will help me if I listen and obey. I get it. There's some challenges, but it's hard. I'll try that. But it gets it gets even worse than that. Let's peel back another layer. Let's look at what the, the and this is the part where it becomes not my, favorite story all that being said so Jesus heals this guy he picks up his mat he walks out there and uh the the legalist the traditionalist the worst right they they see him on this holy day in this holy city and they say hey what are you doing you give not be carrying that you can be carrying a mat that's against our rules we've made up some rules you know that we made up rules that say you cannot carry mats around here why are you carrying that mat and he looks back and says I i was healed by a guy he told me to pick up the mat and walk wouldn't you do the same thing and they said who told you to break our rules who told you to do what you think you can do who told you that and the guy responds listen to this guy's response he goes i don't know i don't know his name well then what are you doing breaking our rules I was healed, and he told me to pick up the mat, right? So I did. That's where I'm standing. He gets in trouble. People jump on him. Religious leaders, civic leaders, he was there hurting, and now they're mad at him. And you know where Jesus is? Nowhere. It says that Jesus healed the guy and then just, got to make sure. And then just sort of backed into the crowd. Lots of people standing around. Jesus walks up. You want to get better? Stand up. Walks away. It's like Jason Bourne. He was there (laughs) and then he's gone. And this is why I don't like the story. It doesn't fit. I want him to say it's like ABCs of salvation. You remember the blind guy? The blind guy yells out, "Uh, uh, son of David, have mercy on me. The story means that he couldn't see, but he could clearly see who Jesus was. He admitted who Jesus was. He didn't even know who Jesus is. You remember the story about the lepers? Ten are healed. One comes back, says, thank you. Thank you for healing me. Jesus said, didn't I heal like 10 people and there's only one coming back? Yeah, it shows that this guy was thankful. He was grateful. He, was, he doesn't do that. I look at this story and I go, look, there was, a, there was a pool full of people that were hurting and you pick this one guy, doesn't even know who you are. He did not deserve that. I mean, what I want Jesus to do is walk in the middle of that pool and say, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you believe I am the son of God, lift up your hand. All y'all are fixed. The rest of y'all, good luck with the legalists, all right? <laughs> That's what I want him to do. That fits. That's very Baptist. This isn't Baptist, so I don't like it. The other thing is, and this hits. It hits. Why only that guy? All right, so you want to fix the guy that doesn't know you. That's fine. But what about like everybody else? There's a lot of people in those colonies. You didn't, you just fixed one. It says there was a great multitude in verse three. You only picked one. Why? Like it's okay to be a little bit irritated at Jesus. Why you only fix that guy? How come you don't fix my friend? You fix that guy, my friend loves you. He knows you. He knows your name. He worships you. You don't want to fix him? How come you don't fix my family member? They know you. They love you. And they're struggling with this pain or that hurt or this physical disability or this challenge. It's harder on them. And I love them. And they love you. And you don't fix them? Fix that guy. How come you don't fix me? That's where this really that's the part where I just want to question where I doubt where I say that's not right how come you didn't do that and so there's obviously some user error obviously I'm not reading it right and so let's let's back up a step and read it right the struggle is does he really love us he does actually love you that was questioned in verse three for god to love the world he gave his son he sacrificed everything so that whoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life and then in verse chapter four he goes towards the outcast the rejected the isolated and he's kind to her he's loving to her and several people are saying so what we know in the light do not doubt in the dark What you know to be true when things are going well is true when things are going hard. Know it for certain. Jesus loves us. Don't jettison that idea. He loves all those people. And he will heal them. That's something that we got to keep in mind that the Bible promises that in one day for those who are followers of God at the end of time, at the end of their lives, Jesus is going to heal them, make it all better, make it all right, fix it. Isaiah 35, five through six is sort of that promise. It says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leave like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. He loves us. He will fix us because we all have something and he might fix you right now, which is what I pray he does like that guy or he might fix you later, but he is going to fix it. He's going to fix it. And I believe that he is because he promised he will. He said he could and then he did. This doesn't disprove his love. It proves his ability. It doesn't disprove that he loves us. It just proves that he can. And all of that drives us towards the real point of the story. User error is that my eyes tend to go toward the dramatic. The guy laying there for 38 years can now walk. That's dramatic. That's gotta be where the meaning is. That's gotta be where the impact is. That's not where the meaning is. That's not where the impact is. It is almost always in what he says, not in what he does. It's almost always in what he says, not in what he does. And so he heals this guy. He slips out of the scene, in scene. The guy gets uh, you know ridiculed. He gets attacked by religious civic leaders, in scene. Next scene is the temple, totally different structure, totally different place. It's packed, people, shoulder to shoulder. Why do I know that? Because it's a holy day in the holy city. The place is cramped. I imagine that the guy was at the pool hoping to get fixed. He gets fixed, but then he gets jumped on by religious leaders. So he just goes stand in the temple, half pouting, half, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know what to do at this point, just standing there. And then wouldn't you know it, out of the crowd, Jesus finds him just kind of walks over to him it says from that point on that the, uh, the Pharisees want to kill Jesus that's sort of the arching idea of this because of the Sabbath controversy but Jesus walks over to the guy leans up next to him what's he say here he says after this Jesus found him in the temple lots of people just kind of walks over to him remember the guy doesn't even know his name he says see you are well and that's such a like a what? What you say? I was laying there for 38. You're fine. You're fine. Don't worry about that part. Don't sin anymore though so that something worse doesn't happen to you. And then back into the crowd and he just disappears. This is the point and it's right here. The don't sin anymore doesn't say that the man was, was lame because he had sinned It's just saying that Jesus is saying, that aside, you're fine. You can walk. But something worse will happen if you rebel against God. If you continue, that's the point. That's what I'm after. Remember John chapter 3? For whoever believes in him will not die, but have eternal life. Jesus looks at him and says, I love you so much. I love all of y'all so much. I am only concerned, I'm really concerned about eternity. Not just, we in our minds can't imagine anything worse than what that man was going through. And Jesus says, there is something way worse than that. It would have been better for you to trust God and then never walk again than to walk and not trust God. That's the emphasis. That's the point. What Jesus is showing us in this text is, yeah, the guy doesn't deserve it. Yeah, he doesn't know who Jesus is. He didn't earn it. He's not a nice guy. He turns around. He leaves this story right after this part when Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm worried about your eternal soul. He goes, okay, great. And he runs back to the Pharisees Dude, dude's name was Jesus, all right? Get off my back. It's Jesus. Go find that guy. He rats on Jesus. Yeah, he doesn't deserve it. But... Neither do you and neither do I, but he loves you. And he wants to save your soul. And the Bible says that if you will trust him, you believe in him, then he will save your soul. So is this a hopeful story? Yes, it is a very hopeful story. It's just a hope deferred story. Psalm 13, verse 12 says, Hope delayed makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled when the hope is fulfilled, it is a tree of life. We are waiting on that tree of life. I'm telling you this, this is, this, is, this is real and raw Christianity. Jesus can fix you, and he might not. He can heal you, and he might not. Right now, ultimately he will, but he primarily cares that you spend eternity with him. Not too long ago, we were traveling, we went to a store that I really like. It's, uh, it's got all this, like, cool stuff in there, all these brands that are, like, outdoorsy stuff, like Patagonia and the North Face, those sorts of I like to buy things that make me look more outdoorsy than I am. And this store has a bunch of that. And so I like going to this store. It not only has that kind of stuff, it also has these brands, these, like, t-shirt companies and and um, clothing and all this kind of stuff that's uh sort of unique to the area and so you can only get things in these stores and so i really like i really like this store i like those kind of t-shirts we went we visited this one and it had this brand of a t-shirt that i had seen on instagram and wanted i wanted one of these shirts but you can't buy them anywhere around here and i really wanted to yeah anybody else like this i wanted to kind of like feel the shirt and see if I really liked it before I bought it you know and so they had it they had one of these shirts they had this brand a whole display of them and then they had the design that I wanted there was one particular design that I was so excited a whole stack of them and so I go flipping through them they don't have my size so and I'm not coming back to the store for a while so I was a little disappointed but I decided at that point I like this shirt I like this brand it checks out I'm going to order this when I get home so I get home I ordered it I was so excited about my shirt. I kept telling everybody, my shirt's coming. It's really excited. And say so, like, I ordered it on Monday and it said it will get here on the next Monday. That's a little ways to wait, but I'm okay with it. All right. I'm excited about this. I'm going to get my shirt. Kept telling everybody, I'm getting a new shirt. You want to see? I got a picture of my new shirt. It's coming. That sort of thing. And then by Wednesday, Wednesday, the tracking shipment order thing updated My shirt would be at my house by Thursday at 9 o'clock. One day. I was thrilled. I took the kids to school and I said, hey, I'm getting my new shirt. New shirt comes today. They cared almost as little as you care right now. (laughs) Couldn't care less. I was like, look, it's a major award. Fragile. It is coming and I'm excited. It's what dads do. And so it gets to be dinner time. Shirt's not there, but it said by 9 p.m. We're fine. Right, and then right after dinner, uh, Jackie looks at me, and I'm looking at the tracking. Where's my shirt? You're looking at this, and she says, "When is your shirt coming?" I said, uh, "Today, by nine. And she said, "Who's who's shipping it? Like, who's the carrier?" And I said, "United States Postal Service, USPS." She says, "Nope. <laughs> if it was them, it would have already been here. I'm I'm looking right at it. It says nine o'clock, today." check the date boom my shirt's coming today she said let me see that and so she looked at it and she says this says your shirt is in dallas right now your shirt is in in dallas and then she says this to me and this is a direct quote how are you 40 and you don't know how to read one of these (laughs) direct quote that's what she said and i tried to listen to that in love and kindness but i don't think she meant it in love or kindness I said, baby, that says giant bold letters right up there, Thursday, 9 p.m. She said, that don't matter. The tracking says it's in Dallas. If it left right now, it wouldn't get to you by nine o'clock. I said, things happen. They have planes. (laughs) And it's my shirt. It's my special shirt. And um, I was so excited to get that because it was Thursday. My day off is Friday. I was going to wear my new shirt on Friday. But she turned out to be right. By 9 o'clock that night, uh, it had updated and said tomorrow, Friday, between 11 and 12. And they hit that right on the, you can trust those USPS folks, they get stuff done, right? My shirt came in, I changed my shirt halfway through Friday, and I wore my new shirt the rest of that day. True story, true pointless story that doesn't matter to anybody. But I'm waiting on a shirt. I'm excited about a shirt. It's coming. It's going to be here. It's going to be on this day. Then it was a little disappointing to come later, but eventually it got here. Listen, I'm telling you this. I know, I know that you're waiting for him to fix something. I know that you want him to do something and you know that he said he would. He said he's going to make it to where you're not afraid anymore. He said like Bailey read, every tear will be dried. He said he would. It's right here. He said he would fix this. I'm just telling you, it may not come when you want it to come, but it's coming. He promised he would, and he will. And I know that that makes you walk away going, I don't like this story. And I'll be honest with you, it's not my favorite either, but it's the reality. He deeply loves you. He will fix it. You just got to trust him. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.